Thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Shu, And I'm Corey Washington, and we're your hosts for Manifold. Our guest today is Betsy McKay. Betsy is a senior writer on U.S. and global public health at the Wall Street Journal. Betsy joined the journal in 1996 as part of the Moscow Bureau, where she wrote about Russia's post-Soviet political and economic transformation. She was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize in 1999 in international reporting for in-depth analytical coverage of the Russian financial crisis. She's won awards for stories on public health issues, including drug-resistant tuberculosis and maternity care in the rural U.S. Welcome to Manifold, Betsy. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So what we'd like to talk to you about, Betsy, are five articles you've written recently, all related to cardiovascular disease. And uh, this is a topic I'm really interested in. I'm doing some work on it now. Um, But I'd like to kind of just go through uh, your what you wrote in these articles, kind of how you, you think about global public health and what you think it's important to communicate the public about. And we have, we'll have links to all the articles uh, on the website. Let me start off with the first article. And this is something I think that people have been familiar with, although not the specific take you have on it. And the article is entitled, Death Rates Rising for Young Middle-Aged U.S. Adults. And we had known that there were actually declining longevity in the U.S. over the past couple of years. I think the thought was that was primarily driven by older middle-aged, often white people, connected to the opioid crisis. But you make the argument in this article that part of it's driven by cardiovascular disease and the rise in obesity. So can you just give us a sense of uh, what you're trying to communicate in this article and how you got onto the idea that CBD was an angle on it? Yeah, well, so heart disease is still the number one killer uh, cause of premature death in this country, right? Or the the leading killer in this country. And progress against it has stalled. If you, you know, look at the data, it's really interesting. Since the 50s, deaths from cardiovascular disease, so that's heart disease and strokes. Heart disease is the number one killer. Strokes are the fifth leading killer in the U.S. right now. If you take it together, the death rates have been coming down pretty steadily and pretty dramatically since the 1950s. I mean, there were some blips between the 50s and the 60s, but since the early 60s, it, it has been just coming down steadily. And that's largely due to you know, the war on smoking, um, lots of advances in medical care, you know, coronary bypass surgery, um, then statins, statin drugs to lower cholesterol in the 80s and 90s, blood pressure medicine. So the rates were coming down, but all of a sudden in 2011, it kind of plateaued. Um, And since 2011, uh, for the overall population, deaths from cardiovascular disease have still been declining, but at a very slow rate. It's sort of like this curve that came down, you know, this hill, (laughs) it was literally a, a, a hill that bottoms out. So I I looked at that and thought, what's going on here? I also have been writing about um, the decline in U.S. life expectancy. And yes, like everybody else, we were focusing on the fact that this is largely due to the um, rise in deaths among middle-aged people from from opioids, right? It's it's been dramatic. Um, But since heart disease is the number one killer and strokes are the number five killer, and progress against them has stalled, you know, I started to think, well, gee, 
that's got to be playing a role here, right? So I um, did a little work with data and talked with the CDC and they said, yeah, it's an under-recognized contributor. I mean, basically what's happening is as you've got deaths from opioids going up, um, that was being offset, you know, in the early 2000s from the, the you know, continued progress against heart disease. But once you're not having um, declines in heart disease deaths anymore, you're not offsetting it. You're not offsetting the deaths from opioids. So I thought, well, this is really interesting. When I look at photos uh, of the 70s and 80s, people were so thin then compared to now. So Americans are, on average, I think they have much higher BMIs. Uh, I guess to say it in a crude way, they're fatter. And how could that not affect heart attack, uh, I mean, uh, cardiovascular issues? I mean, isn't your heart straining more to support the extra body weight? So wouldn't, shouldn't you expect some issue here? So there's a really interesting line in one of your articles, Betsy. I actually think it's one of the other articles where you say the use of statins was masking the effects of obesity for a long time. And so you kept having this declining death rate due to CVD. Right. I, I would expect te- technological advances like statins are helpful, but then other issues like increasing BMI is not helping. And so you could easily imagine one overwhelming the other eventually, right? So this, the effect of statins plateaued, basically, yeah. and then you began to see the effect of BC. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's the reason, but that seems like a plausible hypothesis. Yeah, no, that's, that's essentially what um, the experts I talked to said. You know, I went out asking, what's going on here? Why has this, why has this stopped? Um, and in fact, the death rates, are, if you divide it up by age group, for middle-aged people between 45 and 64, the death rates are now going up since 2011, which is really alarming. You know, the leading killer is killing even more people. Um, and that's also affecting life expectancy. So the answer I kept hearing over and over is just that. You know, you had this, basically, obesity rates started rising pretty dramatically in the 1980s. And if you look at the curves, diabetes, um, which is linked to obesity, you know, similarly started skyrocketing a few years later, kind of the mid early 90s. But if statins were introduced at the same time, so you had this, this masking effect, right? There was so much benefit from statins. Now, um, nobody knows why 2011 rather than, you know, 2010 or 2012, but essentially what, you know, cardiologists and epidemiologists believe is that the effect of statins, the benefit in the population has kind of um, reached its a natural point. And now the um, effects of obesity and diabetes are really starting to take a toll. The other thing you have to remember is that it takes a while, right, for, for the effects of diabetes to start having an effect on your heart. So people say there's a lot of a lot of factors going on at once playing into this. With obesity and diabetes, the two biggest culprits, they think there are um, you know researchers looking at other issues like stress, but there's still a lot to be you know still a lot that's not known about that. You know when I was looking at these uh, news reports about increased uh, I guess decreased longevity slash increased mortality. There was always a sense that this is somebody else, right? This is the opioid crisis. It's Appalachia. It's certain parts of America that's dealing with economic troubles. But I think great thing about your article is it reminds people this is actually a pretty mainstream problem. Uh, definitely the obesity part of it is. And so the effect is something you're seeing is not just those other people, which I think many people had viewed the issue in the past couple of years. 
Right. No. And, you know, and that's actually one of the problems here is people who are middle-aged often don't realize they're at risk. I have, I portrayed a couple of people in my story, a family who lost, you know, the father, the man of the family, um, and then a woman who survived a heart attack. And both really didn't suspect that they were, that there was anything wrong. And yet they, they suddenly had heart attacks. And he had just lost his father and was um, co-chairing a American Heart Association ball. He was a leader in his community, a corporate executive. I mean, these are kind of, these are the people who are being affected by this and don't realize it. Now, in, in the case of these individuals, were they sort of very fit people that really had no idea at all that they might have a heart attack and then they had one? Or were, they, were there some uh, symptoms that they were at risk? So everyone has their own individual story. The man who died, he actually had a heart attack right after he had finished his morning workout. I, I often suspect that's how I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> right after the morning um, workout, bang. But he was overweight. I think he had a beer. He was, right. Okay. He also, he was on some medications. A lot of people in middle age are on blood pressure and, and statin medications. I, I, I hate to ask this question because it sounds like the evidence is overwhelming, but I was always kind of worried about statins because it seems like the, the drug, it's a very powerful thing that it's doing to your system. And it sounds like you're saying now for sh- people are quite sure that it's beneficial, that the reduction in cholesterol level actually then is causal uh, for improving heart health, not just... So I was always worried that it was decreasing a risk factor for heart attacks, but maybe it wasn't actually reducing the rate of heart attacks the data show, or at least the population data show, it's had a benefit, right? Heart attacks have come down a lot. Mm-hmm. I guess if you look at people taking statins and then see them saying, well, that means I can eat, you know, steak every day <laughs> type of thing. You know, you always worry about that. Like right. if you take a medication and then are you really taking care of yourself? But statins, you know, so many people take statins, people who are in shape, out of shape, who eat well, who eat badly. And across the population, there's been a benefit. Okay, I guess I better listen to my doctor then. Is he recommending? <laughs> well, I, well, there are people. There are. I will say there are people who worry about statin statins have some side effects. There are people who really who have sworn them off. But uh, you know, doctors say for the largest part, of the, for most people, they work. I think I have borderline high cholesterol, just at the point where the doc would say, hey, maybe you should consider taking statins, and I've always resisted it, but maybe I'm not doing the right thing. On the other hand, uh, I switched to this keto diet over a year ago where you eat tons of cholesterol and fat and stuff like this, and my cholesterol has not budged at all, so um, go figure. So we're going to get into cholesterol uh, because it's one of the topics that (laughs) Betsy covers in some of her other articles. But let's let's look at the second article, which is right along these lines. It's called How to Reduce Your Risk of Heart Disease. One of the first topics in the article is the are the new guidelines on blood pressure. So previously, I think you the guidelines said that you're pretty good shape if you had blood pressure around 120 over 80. Uh, if you had like 125 or 85 or so, you're fine. Uh, hypertension was defined as having consistent blood pressure of 140 over 90. That's 140 systolic over 90 diastolic. Uh, Systolic being the pressure as your heart's contracting. It's the high point. Diastolic being the pressure as your heart's uh, relaxing, the low point. 
Um, but with the new guidelines, healthy is now defined as below 120 over 80. If you have blood pressure between 120 and 130, or between 80 and systolic, and between 80 and 90 diastolic, that's elevated hypertension. And then it's over 130, above 130, uh, I think over 90, or consistently, or either 130 over 80, perhaps, is uh, pre is phase one hypertension. We'll have a link up to the exact guidelines. Um, but now they're recommending having blood pressure below 120 over 80. And this has led to a lot of people being classified as hypertensive now who are not hypertensive. So, right. but, but as you know, there's a lot of disagreement about this. So how did you approach this, Betsy, when you're writing a, about a topic like this, which is the recommendations, but I've noticed a lot of doctors are dissenting from it. Yeah. As, as a writer, what do you, how do you try to communicate this to the public? Yeah, it's a hard one because when you look, when they basically, when it lowered, you know, I think of it lowering from 140 over 90 to 130 over 80. And in that window, there are a ton of people. I mean, now with the new guidelines, so any, the, 46% of American adults, basically half of the adult U.S. population, has high blood pressure under the new guidelines, which were released in 2017. And it was something like under a third before. So it's a lot of people. And the recommendation from the American Heart Association and the you know, American College of Cardiology, the, the sort of societies was that people in that window, you know, be counseled to make lifestyle changes. So one of the controversies was, well, if you put, if you lower the guidelines, more people are just going to be put on medication and, you know, that's it. Nobody's going to counsel lifestyle changes because that's too hard to make. I don't know where it's fallen out. It's probably too early to tell, but I personally know people who have 135 over whatever, and they've been put on blood pressure medication, whereas they weren't on it before. So, um, so I think there are a lot of issues that, you know, doctors don't have a lot of time to counsel. Uh, you know how much time you have with, with your doctor, your primary care doctor, right? And your, your doctor has to see a lot of people that day. How much time do they have to talk with you about how much exercise you're doing and what you're eating and so forth? So it really has been a controversial thing. As a, as a, as a data and machine learning guy, I, I always wonder, you know, rather than have these categories where you say, oh, if your blood pressure is, you know, 121, suddenly you're in the, you know, high, elevated. Yeah, elevated category. Rather than have these just arbitrary categories, I think the key issue is conditional on your blood pressure what's the probability that something is going to happen to you, right? In other words, like for every 5% increase in your blood pressure, how much does that elevate your risk for heart attack or this or that? So that is known actually for stroke. This uh, research suggests that for every 20 uh, millimeter increase in uh, systolic pressure above 120 or 10 millimeter increase in diastolic above 75, you double your stroke risk. Okay, so it so it's a, that sounds like a pretty sharp increase. Uh, it's pretty sharp. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, that's interesting. And of course, there there are racial variations in this. Yeah. Um, blacks and South Asians are at higher risk for stroke, mm -hmm. uh, even at the same uh, blood pressure level. In fact, I think the the guy who died in, in Betsy's story was uh, was was African American. Well, there are. I mean, African Americans are at um, higher risk of cardiovascular disease, men and women, and they've 
they're higher risk and they have higher, much higher rates of it. But in terms of Corey, to get to answer your question, in terms of communicating it to the public, you know, it, it's hard. And I think Steve brought up a good point. I mean, the 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 way to communicate it to people is to to tell them what it means for them. And when I'm writing about something like a new guideline or a new study, I try to just figure out the context and present people with the context. Like, here's the new guideline. Here's how many people are affected by it. And here's what it means for you. It, in this case, it means that if you're within this, in this group between 130 and 140, you need to make lifestyle changes, but your doctor may put you on medication if you can't make the lifestyle changes or you don't make the lifestyle changes. But I think a more useful thing is for people to understand what it means, you know, for every five points, as you said, what every uh, five points means to your blood pressure. Um, one of the challenges journalists have is, you know, when guidelines, new guidelines are released, sometimes you don't have a lot of time. You have to get a story up really quickly. <laughs> and so figuring out these really interesting details, unless you have some time beforehand or something, it can be sometimes just impossible. Or by the time you figure it out, it's, you know, past your deadline. But also, you know, the process, I don't know if it's the American Heart Association or whatever professional body comes up with the guidelines, could it not be just another case like when the food pyramid was jammed down our throats when we were all little kids and we were told you had to eat, you know, carbs were at the base and then et cetera, et cetera. And it turned out to be a kind of pretty arbitrary uh, piece of public health that wasn't really didn't have a lot of empirical uh, data backing it. Well, here I think they've got pretty good data linking blood pressure and heart attack risk and mortality. But the question is kind of where you want to draw the line. I think right. you sort of know the you know the shape of the function, but it's just unclear what tolerance you're going to have for for risk, right? And and what kind of lifestyle change? When do you think someone should get medication or might be just told to go for a run every right. so often? Yeah, it's a it, it, Corey's right. So the science is known. It's just a question of how low can you go, you know? And the things you have to take into account are what are how are people going to respond, you know? And and also what can the healthcare system mm -hmm. do? And, you know, what would it take for the average person to get below 120? So, um, so it's less, I think, less controversial in that, in that sense. I mean, always with these things, guidelines and screening and so forth and studies, one looks at uh, disclosures and potential conflicts of interest and so forth. But these big these big guidelines have very large advisory bodies working on them. So the second recommendation you discuss is a heart-healthy diet. And it's pretty interesting because this, is, again, is going to look different than it did in the 70s. As you say, a heart-healthy diet includes a variety of vegetables and fruits, fish, skinless poultry, whole grains, and nuts and legumes, uh, limited saturated fat, sodium, red meat, and sweets. So I think it hasn't quite gone as far as you, Steve, in your keto world. <laughs> but uh, notice they're not, the carbs are not at the center, right? And it's uh, whole grains. It's kind of down on the list. That's a pretty significant change from when we were yeah. growing up. But I, so as the keto guy, I look at that. And, you know, if, if someone had said that to me a year and a half ago, I would have said, oh, yeah, that sounds like, yeah, that's the healthy diet, right? Science, because science. But even like this thing about take the skin off the chicken or don't eat red meat, I'm very dubious actually. Well, I, I'd like to see the details of 
the link between dietary cholesterol and circulating cholesterol. Um, and I suspect that there's broad genetic variation in terms of how sensitive you are uh, in, in the, the link between the two. Steve, how have you done on the keto on a keto diet? I love the keto diet. I have to say the way I got on it was totally bizarre. It was because the AI recommendation engine on YouTube is, of course, carefully studying me. So it, it sees what videos I'm looking at. So it kind of knows like I'm a fitness nut. And so it started about a year ago showing me, wanting to me to watch videos about the keto diet. And at the time, I thought this is some crazy, stupid, you know, some nutty thing. But then I watched one. And these guys made some very uh, specific claims, which I thought were really fascinating, concerning switching your metabolism from being mainly carb-calorie-driven to being able to metabolize fats more directly. And one of the mysteries that I always wondered about growing up was it I, I was a guy who was always eating. I, I think I listened to the bodybuilders, and I would eat like six meals, small meals a day, so supposedly that's better for your system. And... But I would get ravenously hungry. I would I literally feel like pain in my stomach if I was not if I didn't have food. And I thought, how would a hunter gatherer possibly survive with that kind of the kind of metabolic condition that I have? Because if I had to go even a day without food, it would be like the most painful thing possible. And so I thought there's something wrong here. And these keto guys were saying, no, you're actually evolved as a hunter gatherer to be able to switch to just start metabolizing the fat stores on your body. And I thought, oh my God, if I can just switch my, you know, alter my diet slightly and get into that mode, that would be really interesting. So I actually just did it as an experiment because um, I was already kind of low carb. And so I went, they said, oh, if you go under 55 grams of carbs a day, you can get into this ketosis mode. And I tried it and it, it worked. And so, and I immediately lost like 10 pounds and I've sort of been on it now for over a year. And I, one of the interesting things at my last checkup, I was curious whether being on this keto diet where you're like eating eggs and saturated fats and all kinds of crazy stuff uh, would elevate my cholesterol level, and it, it didn't. So uh, anyway, so I don't believe what anybody says about anything on in these matters. That's really interesting that it hasn't affected your cholesterol. That's good to know. Well, so the keto guys, there's a whole theory, like these PhD scientists and MD PhD scientists will get on these YouTube videos and explain to you that you know, actually, most of the cholesterol is made in your—is it your liver? It's your liver, yeah. Yeah, and mm -hmm. what you eat is a tiny, tiny fraction of what's actually circulating in your body. So, how can it be the main driver? And so, just in terms of dynamical systems, I thought, yeah, that sounds pretty plausible. So, uh, I'm sure there are some people who, yeah, if you look at a the skin on a chicken or uh, an egg or some cheese, their cholesterol goes up. But I think probably a lot of people are not in that category. So, the general thought is that there is some essentially homeostatic mechanism that you can start consuming cholesterol through your diet and your body will then basically uh, tamp down the amount that your body produces on its own. But yeah, there hasn't been a lot of discussion about how much variation there is um, between... Um, yeah, genetic genetic variation or even microbiome yeah. variation. I, I think you need you need much probably larger data sets and much more detailed data. You may get that over time. You've got to... It's extremely hard to monitor what people eat. Yeah. And so maybe if have cameras kind of watching us as we will pretty soon, <laughs> you'd be able to get some objective data on that. I mean, I think one thing that is clear with all of these diets is that limiting sugar, limiting carbs more broadly and specifically sugar and foods that break down into these sugars is, you know, that's where a lot of damage is done to the body when you overload it, right? So 
So limiting that. I actually um, eat essentially zero sugar unless it's in a sauce. Like I can't avoid that someone has put it in the right. sauce, but I basically eat zero. So no fruit. I, that was the most difficult part because I used to eat like, you know, five oranges a day or some crazy thing like that. And so I re radically reduced my fruit intake. I eat a lot more berries, which supposedly have some delayed release of the sugars or something. Uh, who knows whether any of this is true. But the one interesting thing about the keto diet, which I will say, is that it has shifted my metabolism in a very radical way so that when I get hungry, the actual sensation of hunger is radically different than previously in my life, where I used to feel these sharp hunger pains. Now I just feel this sort of dull feeling that, oh, I guess I'm supposed to eat now or something. And uh, I can sort of, I don't know if this is actually happening, but I can visualize my body just starting to metabolize fat out of its own cells, which I think is what you're supposed to be able to do. Uh, but anyway, I have a dull sense of hunger rather than sharp sense of hunger now. Oh, so that's interesting. So you're not having spikes. You know, people talk about spikes of hunger nope. from from, you know, um, a diet that has a lot of carbohydrates. Exactly. That's the issue. So that went away. So the, the claim from the keto crowd is that you will smooth that all out and then you can easily fat if you wanted to, because keto is also linked to intermittent fasting. So a lot of people say you should deliberately try to fast for long periods of time. And, uh, it makes it much more, uh, reasonable to do that because the, the, discomfort level is much lower from fasting because because you actually are i think metabolizing the calories from your fat it's like emptying out your fat cells when cory when cory and i went to college um do you remember cory there was ice cream of course <laughs> of course every meal there was a special cooler in every um every dining room and you could get Unlimited. As much ice cream as you wanted, whenever you wanted it. Did we have some arrangement with an ice cream company? I wasn't sure, but somehow it was it was a plentiful and it was the best tasting thing produced by the dining hall. So the attraction was unbelievable. Uh, you know, yeah. when I was at that age, we were all told, low-fat diet, take the skin off the chicken breast, uh, but yeah. sugar, you can eat all the sugar you want because actually calorie density of sugar is not really that high compared to fats. And so all the professional bodybuilders who are trying to get down to 5% body fat would eat that way. But I'm increasingly convinced that's actually the wrong way to eat. Yeah, no, I think so. I, I see, I, I bring up the ice cream because I personally kind of, my sweet tooth just built from that point. <laughs> I developed this sweet tooth <laughs> you, in college. You can, you can sue Amherst. <laughs> and it, it took me yes, something, you know, I got in addition to my diploma. And, they, um, they hooked you on sugar. A few, it hooked me on sugar. And a few years ago, I just said, enough is enough. You know, I'd get under stress and eat a lot of cookies and stuff. And I went on this no sugar. I didn't do fruit or anything. I just cut out, you know, ice cream and stuff like that. And I have felt a lot better. Just doing that, you know, has really helped a lot. So it seems, so. It seems that, <clears throat> at least at this level, Gary Taubes may have won the argument. So... Okay, so just to back up for our listeners, so the Taub's argument was that a calorie is not just a calorie, right? So the earlier wisdom that I had gotten when I was younger was that you just got to count the number of calories, and uh, as long as you don't eat too many calories, you can lose weight. If you eat too many, you'll gain weight. And Taub's claimed that certain calories, like from carbs and sugar, were worse for various complex metabolic reasons than perhaps calories coming from, say, fat or protein. And 
So this is complicated, right? Because there's a very tightly controlled trial at NIH, yes, which seemed to refute Taubes. Is that published now? Because a friend of mine was involved in that trial. Yeah, I don't. I think that was published okay. actually. But then there was a subsequent study which seemed to show that actually, although they seem to be medically equivalent over the short term, longer term you seem to lose weight if you uh, avoided sugars. I still think it's up in the air, but you, you know, people have reported some kind of metabolic difference. So my understanding is that, so NIH performed this, and, and the, the study that, that I'm thinking about was very rigorous because I think they had sealed rooms where they could track the CO2 uh, emissions from the individuals in the study so they could actually get a direct handle on the metabolism of what, you know, how much energy they were uh, consuming. And I think it was funded by this billionaire, the, the Arnold Foundation, who got very interested in these issues and um, also supports open science. So it's a really interesting story. And I think my friend, who's a former physicist who works at NIH, um, was telling me that ahead of time that, yeah, they were going to find no differential metabolic effect between sugar and and fat. But of course, there could be a longer-term effect that their study was not sensitive to. I think it's right. It's uh, it's one of these things that just looks like it's fairly complicated, and there may be individual variation that's not... That's the other dumb. thing, is is that I'm sure that genetically there's just variation between individuals as to what category they're in. And so you could easily do the study with one set of people and get one result, and then do it with another set of people and get a different result. So let me give you a little personal example of uh, metabolic, sort of metabolic effects of, uh, of calorie reduction changing um, your diet. So I recently lost about 10 or 12 pounds... Um, and, you look uh, great. Well, thanks, Steve. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I felt better afterwards. I had uh, sort of fewer stomach issues. I could eat a lot more. I wasn't having um, problems digesting things. But what happened is I clearly lost a lot of muscle. You know, I still have these fantasies about going into the gym, trying to bench press things, and my bench press like dropped in half. And so it's clear that what was happening is I wasn't just met metabolizing fat. My body was getting rid of muscle at the same time. So I'm now I'm a little bit skeptical. These people say that you just go on these kind of diets and you work out and you're just going to burn a lot of fat. I, and my weightlifting friends also tell me that you actually end up losing both fat and muscle whenever you reduce your weight. So I, I don't think it's a free lunch as far as metabolism goes I don't here. think it's easy to lose weight without also losing some muscle. I think I agree with you. But having been like around the weightlifting bodybuilding world for a long time, um, as I was doing the keto thing, I was actually monitoring my lifts, my performance and lifts. So I don't think I lost a lot of muscle, but uh, you know, I'm sure I lost some. People tell me it's also how fast you lose it because I was told I did it all wrong. Like I just got fed up one time. I kind of didn't eat for a weekend or so, and I dropped like ten pounds in like three days. Yeah, you're guaranteed to lose muscle on that. <laughs> yeah, because your body will just start remetabolizing the muscle, right? So, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I was I was kind of weak. My BP was very good, you know. Other issues went away, but I was kind of weak and tired, and yeah, I was. Uh, it's been slowly kind of ramping up. My strength's been coming back, but it took a little bit. So I, d I want to make sure we get eventually to our um, our our egg issue. Uh, so the other recommendation, Betsy, in this article are don't smoke. Uh, no, right. no big news there, right? But yeah, no, nothing controversial there. Right? But but there is information about um, e-cigarettes, which you might think are better because. You know, you're not yeah. sn smoking in um, combustion from uh, tobacco, but you but you're saying that there's also health issues related. And it's not just about getting addicted to nicotine, right? 
this is a whole new area of research and a whole new set of questions. So we know that smoking cigarettes is bad and the rates of, you know, the rates in the US of smoking have gone down dramatically. They're down, you know, below 14% now. But vaping is on the rise and vaping helps people stop smoking cigarettes. So that's a good thing. Uh, a lot of teenagers also vape and that's a bad thing because that, that could be a gateway for them to smoking. Um, certainly there's a risk of nicotine addiction. And yes, beyond um, nicotine, the questions now are, what else does using e-cigarettes do to you? Because there are chemicals in, um, in vaping products, right? You're vaping something in, and the question is, what is that something and what is it doing to you? So there are studies underway, it's definitely unanswered question, um, but one study a few months ago suggested that the flavorings in e-cigarettes could um, increase heart disease risk. So it's TBD, I think, but there's a lot of concern about it. So yeah, I'm just looking here at some of the chemicals involved in e-cigarettes. Uh, you've got ultrafine particles that can go deep into your lungs, their flavorants, which may be problematic. Uh, there are other organic compounds, and there may even be heavy metals associated with uh, e-cigarettes. So I guess, yeah, the thought you're going to get away with a much cleaner inhale. It may be much cleaner than regular cigarettes. Uh, it still seems to have pretty dangerous things. So I'm, I'm right. interested, you know, not a lot of teenagers are reading the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> so, you know, th these articles- We're trying to change that. <laughs> <laughs> these articles are aimed- at people who are, you know, older, who may have kids. Do you have any thought when you write an article like this, that you're kind of writing for a parent of somebody maybe using e-cigarettes? Or do you just think, well, I'm giving out broad information to the public without really a thought about, you know, the use of this? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm writing for the general reader. And, you know, an older person probably has a child or even a grandchild you know, we have very engaged readers. These are also just interesting intellectual questions. You know, heart disease is a concern for everyone. You develop the habits at a young age that become the problems later on, right? So, so in, with a story like this, I really am writing it for everybody. You know, we all know who our readers are generally, but it's a pretty broad swath of the population. And we are trying to get young people reading. Do you read the comments in your articles? Yes. And <laughs> and what the comments have changed by the way. We now we now pose a question and ask people to answer a question rather than just commenting on anything they want to comment on. And what do you tend to learn when you read these comments? Or do you is there anything you are the things you tend to learn from a given article? Yeah, I mean, I've had, okay, so there's comments of two kinds. One are the comments that are posted on, you know, below the article um, on the website, um, you know, which are now, or now as an answer to the question that's posed. And then there are readers who write to me directly. And I learn from, from all of them. There have been things I've followed up on and written, you know, stories about as a result. For example, when I was writing about vaping, you know, I got onto the idea that teens were becoming addicted to nicotine from some reader emails. Uh, with, with this heart disease, you know, it's interesting. I got quite a few emails 
for the two heart disease articles, one was the one that we've been talking about, about how to reduce your health risk. That was a sidebar to the bigger story. So readers wrote in about that. Um, they were actually, uh, several wrote in about um, diet and said, you know, we're very adamant about diets like paleo or keto um, as the answer. So, you know, it helps me. The number of emails I got about that showed me how popular those diets are than we, and, you know, there's more for us to write about them. So Steve's fanatical um, proselytizing with regard to keto is not out of the mainstream, you're saying? People who have tried it really, really um, have, you know, they feel a lot better. And I have friends who have, you know, had the same um, kind of benefit that Steve is talking about. So yes, I heard from a lot of readers about that. I heard from them about, about other things. I mean, a lot of people wrote to me saying, you know, what you wrote, we didn't know. We knew pieces of it, but we didn't know the whole picture. That's the kind of gratifying um, reader comment to get because then you know you've, you've, you know, added something to the conversation, so to speak. Regarding keto, I want to say your mileage may vary. This is not medical advice. Everyone is different. So, Betsy, the um, next recommendation uh, from your article is to maintain a healthy weight. And I think this is something that many people struggle with uh, with age. Is there, are there recommendations about what you should do as you get older? Should you reduce how much you eat? Should you increase your level of exercise? Should you monitor your weight more closely? Is there any? Um, are there any? Uh, is there any data out, about out there on, on these topics? A couple of things. I mean, there are uh, recommendations certainly that you a eat a healthy diet, maintain a healthy diet, and b, you know, not necessarily actively reduce what you're eating, but your your appetite tends to decrease. Um, so you just have to be mindful of that. Is what people say. I should add that you know years ago when I was writing about obesity and some obesity research, you know some research has found a protective effect from um, excess weight as you age, right? As you get older and sicker, you know you you kind of need that weight to protect you when you are as you're fighting off the diseases of very old age. So I mean, you know people keep that in mind, but there's a difference I think. You know, when people talk about obesity, I think they have in mind everything from a couple of extra pounds to the morbid obese. And so it becomes a little bit unhelpful because a few extra pounds is one thing, but you know, people who really develop the problems are the are people with very high BMIs. I don't know if I'm answering your question. The the certainly your metabolism you slow down, right? Your metabolism slow down, slows down, your appetite slows down. And what experts say, doctors, family physicians, cardiologists say, is you just you have to be mindful of that. And exercise has many benefits as you age, not just weight reduction. Um, as we know, keeping moving, you know, keeps keeps your joints from <laughs> having trouble. From yeah. <laughs> so, so this was actually a, a fairly controversial topic a few years ago, as to how much weight you should keep on as you got older. Because there were conflicting studies, right? Some saying that, yeah, having extra weight was protective. Then, then this went against the general trend that lower weight was better. And so it, it, they, I, I noticed that a lot of the recommendations are quite vague. They say maintain a healthy weight. They don't quite tell you exactly what this is. 
Well, I think that's because, I mean, you were asking me for data. I, I, I think it's because it's just, it's really not known. You know, there are different studies showing, coming to different conclusions, like um, excess weight can help you, but clearly not too much excess weight because you don't need, you know, um, many, many, many extra pounds to stay alive. You sort of have to, I think what everybody's trying to come to is you have to hit that sweet spot between high levels of obesity and just a few extra pounds that could, but I think of it as a yet to be fully explored area of, of research. Okay. I have to give my interpretation of this study result because I I'd actually discussed this with some other medical researchers. So the finding that um, as people get pretty old, being a little bit heavier is associated with um, longer, uh, greater longevity. I believe the effect that's actually driving this statistical result is that being very, very low weight is correlated to poor health, and then you die. And so what's actually happening here is because we're dealing with an average variable, people then calculate an average. Like, in other words, for the conditional on being this weight, uh, are you going to die? Or, you know, do people who are slightly heavier live longer? The issue is that people who are about to die lose a lot of weight and who are unhealthy. And so then you get this effect that you then wrongly conclude that it's actually better to be heavier. But what it really is saying is it's better not to be super, super emaciated because that's actually correlated to poor health. So presumably you could test this theory by simply... Uh, excluding people, say, within six months exactly. of dying. So, so and does it re- disappear at that point? Well, so that's that's the question I was asking these medical researchers. So I think if you if you reanalyze the data, you just exclude people who are just unusually below weight for their, say, super low or BMI. Or who have, have cancer. Yeah, or, exactly. You know, or, or, so or opioid addicts, you know, who don't eat, you know. So so they're all, I think then the effect would largely go away. Um, I'm not sure I'm, we should talk to our epidemiology friends about this, but that's my interpretation of this. I'm not so sure about that. I think there have been, but I confess that I have not looked at this. I have not written about this in quite a while. The next thing you mentioned, Betsy, is something I'd actually never heard of before, uh, which is calcium scan. You recommend that people get calcium scans. So I I looked up what a calcium scan was, but can you tell us what is it and why should we get it? It's a coronary artery artery calcium scan. Um, It was actually... There was a recommendation about it just a few months ago um, uh, for people who are at some risk of heart disease. In other words, um, you know, their doctors are trying to decide: do they need to be? Do they need to go on a statin or not? You know, and some sort of question about that. A calcium scan can help them make the decision. So calcium scan, it's basically a scan. It's like a CT scan of your heart. It, uh, it takes just a couple minutes to do, and it shows whether you have plaque buildup. So it kind of is like eyes on the problem. You know, it can, it, 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 it can show what actually is going on with your, with your heart and the amount of plaque around it. The problems are, um, Insurance doesn't always cover it. It can be expensive for some people. Some people have worried about how much radiation you're exposed to, although the American Heart Association says that risk of radiation has been reduced. So, and then the other thing is who really needs it? You know, if you're not at risk, do you actually need this, you know, and the experts so far say, no, it's really only people at risk. 
You know, one interesting thing is to look at the really private concierge-like medical services that the super wealthy can get. And so I just recently sort of got into contact with some people in this world. And it turns out that the rich are getting treated very differently than we are. So they are getting this kind of advanced imaging and all kinds of very bespoke kind of stuff that we are not typically offered by our you know, regular doctor down the street. It's quite interesting. And then when you talk to the entrepreneurs who are building startups around, for example, new imaging technology, they're extremely bullish on the capabilities of this stuff, of being able to basically look inside and say, yeah, you have plaque buildup right there. Um, and of course, insurance doesn't cover most of us for getting that kind of imaging, but the rich people who are just paying out of pocket can get it. There's a big program at Mayo. There's an executive program at Mayo. So if you work, if you're a C-level executive at a you know Fortune 500 company, you probably have a health plan that lets you go to Mayo once or twice a year, and they do this incredible workup on you, which is nothing like what I get from my local GP. <laughs> right. I mean, this is probably a topic for another day, but it is true that you can basically get your entire body imaged today. The question is do you learn anything useful from it, you know, and, and what do you learn? And will you just end up with a bunch of false positive stuff that then you have to get biopsied or so it's, that's a completely different set of questions, obviously. Yeah. I, I think for the healthcare system, all these false positives and the patient then asking a bunch of questions and Googling stuff and getting concerned that creates cost and time burden for the system, which is why they don't let you do this stuff, even though the actual imaging might be cheap, as what the entrepreneurs claim in terms of the actual cost of doing this imaging now. But if you have this kind of bespoke medical care, where you have a physician who devotes a lot of time to your well-being, and they can look carefully for, you know, to make sure they're not uh, alarming you over a false positive or something, then the issue of, like, can they detect a tail risk condition in you? Like, well, yeah, you actually do have unusual blockage in this part of your heart. Um, they can detect that kind of little problem much earlier than uh, it would be the case for regular people. No, that's, that's, that, that is true. It's totally true. You, and you, you can see things and detect something before it would ever become obvious through symptoms. But, but also you're often detecting things that won't become problems, right? This is the, some of the issue of right. some of these uh, ways of imaging for cancer. These things often right. appear and then disappear over time. Right. I, I'm, so, sure, I'm sure even for the, these people that have the bespoke medical care that they run into this problem, that the physician has to decide, wow, is this a false alarm? Do I need to discuss this with my client? Or So even they are not immune to that problem, but they just can put a lot more hours on it uh, than the regular health system can for us. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a point. And I think, you know, the point I was just trying to make is that the the technology is ahead of of um, medicine's understanding of what you see, yep. right? Like you, um, as Corey said, with certain forms of cancer, is this, is this ever going to be a problem or not? And if it's not, you know, why touch it? On the other hand, um, finding out that you have plaque buildup and you're, you're you know, you're imminently, you're overdue for a heart attack is extremely useful information. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, there are people who've been, you know, wheeled into the operating room from these. So I, th I think the question is finding, figuring out who the people are who should have this test and getting it covered. To, to, so the, I think there is a difference between plaque buildup and 
cancer because your body's fighting cancers all the time and sometimes your body just wins and the the tumor cells go away i think that's probably usually the case whereas it's harder to imagine the plaque buildup suddenly reversing because it probably took like 30 years for that to accumulate now one of the entrepreneurs i spoke to whose his company does machine learning on uh, imaging stuff um he was claiming to me that for example prostate cancer which men our age uh really that's a big unknown like uh, you don't know whether you have it. Maybe you have it, but it's benign. It's not aggressive. Um, he claims it's actually quite easy to image that part of the body now and just track what's going on with your prostate. But the medical system hasn't really operationalized this yet. But if you had infinite money um, and access to the high technology, you could be just watching at once a month. They look carefully at your prostate um, without the sort of hugely invasive, painful, you know, standard method without using that. And so that, that would be an example of some kind of medical, perhaps useful medical care that the super rich can get that we can't get. Maybe it'll trickle down. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not in time for us. <laughs> you guys are young. It'll trickle down in time. Yeah. It'll trickle down just when you need it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Great. So the last recommendation is to exercise. You know, the current recommendations are for 150 minutes a week. Right, just over 20 minutes a day on average. And I'm actually kind of interested in that recommendation because it just seems totally arbitrary. Uh, is, does something magical happen at 20 minutes? And what's the quality level that, exactly. at what point does it become exercise? If I'm mopping my floor, am I exercising? Or Yeah, so I think that's the more interesting thing is what, what counts in here is exercise. And, I, I, you know, years ago I covered a... Um, study by the CDC or recommendation, basically finding, you know, saying that even vacuuming now counts as physical activity. And uh, (laughs) so I thought, I remember seeing that and thinking, wow, we have really reached a point. (laughs) Um, (laughs) In fact, I have to go now and, well, now that they have the, uh, you know, the the Roomba or whatever. Exactly. Like, that's not exercise anymore. The Roomba is bad for us. Maybe watching, so, maybe watching the Roomba actually is kind oh, of exercise now. Chase it around. <laughs> so I think, I think just as much as the, uh, or just as controversial as the number of minutes per week assigned to this is what exactly is exercise. And clearly in today, um, also with the aging population, you know, it's not all you got to go run 10 miles or you've got to lift, you know, bench press this amount. Like, Taking a good long walk is um, is exercise. So, um, you know, there's a recent article in the Times saying that people who live the longest exercise at least 45 minutes a day. But you're right in that what qualified in those 45 minutes was pretty interesting. They said that people who hit that 45 minute target were pretty uh, expansive as what qualifies exercise. They might go for a run, they might go for a bike, but they may not get in their full 45, and they may just walk for 15 minutes more. And it seems uh, pretty clear that the intensity of the exercise matters. So the more intense you're exercising, uh, the shorter you have to go to get the amount. I think this has been one of the real interesting things that's come out of the whole high-intensity movement. You know, we used to go for these very long runs, Betsy, when we were in college. Um, Mm -hmm. But... If we look back at it and say, you know, we probably would have gotten as intense an exercise if we ran the races we ran like three days a week. These races may be 25 minutes, right? But we probably couldn't have done that, actually. Probably couldn't have raced all out three times a week for 25 minutes. Uh, maybe you could, but maybe you could do it every day. But you could either way, you could cut down the amount of time you were exercising by upping the intensity. 
And so I think yeah. what's also not clear, yeah, is this is the length of time, the function of uh, the intensity, and what the thresholds are. Um, my general goal is to try to do an hour a day, six days a week. If you try, if I work out in intense fashion, I don't, I can't do that. Right, you start doing some sprints, and you're not going to be sprinting yeah. for an hour. So Corey and I, over the years, have because we're both exercise obsessives, have talked a little bit about something called Tabata. I don't know if that's ever come up in your work. No. Um, this is an exercise scientist in Japan who did these studies. And now these have been replicated with exquisite precision where they actually put the person in like uh, one of these rooms where they monitor CO2. So the great thing is the initial studies were done in mice. And do you remember how these studies were run? Oh, I didn't know that. I thought he was doing it with like college students on bicycles or no, something. No, he first took a mouse and dropped it in water. Show you, it's this borderline, borders line, is borderline. Um, Abusive? A little bit, yeah. And so he take it, and the mouse could basically swim for about an hour or so. He t- put the mouse in, let swim for an hour and take it out. Then he took mice, and he dropped them in the water with a weight on them. And this thing had to swim for 20 seconds, and he pulled out, and he put it in for another 20 seconds. It got a 10-second break, and he did it eight times. Uh, he did this three days a week. And the result was that the mice that had to swim basically for their lives for 20 seconds at a time had the same muscle development and cardiovascular uh, uh, capacity development as the mice who swam effectively uh, each day for about an hour casually. Yes. That was the initial. So I was super interested in this uh these results because as a kid, I was a sprinter in swimming and also in running and stuff. I could never run long distances, but I was reasonably fast over short distances. And so I was was wondering, is the fun... So if you're just jogging, people often say, oh, you burn about 100 calories for every mile that you run. It varies a little bit by body weight. But I always thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I break that mile down into a certain 1,500 meter sprints or something... Uh, surely I'm burning a heck of a lot more calories doing it that way than just jogging the mile. So there's some should be some nonlinearity depending on the intensity. And now these Tabata studies have shown that you could literally burn like uh, hundreds of calories, not just at the time you're doing the exercise, but then in elevated metabolism throughout the day uh, if you did intense exercise rather than mod, uh, sort of slower exercise. And so I think that's well established now. Exercise and diet, you know, writing about them is so much harder than writing about anything else because, <laughs> because, because the science is evolving. Um, a, B, everybody is looking for, all of us, I mean, we all innately are looking for the simple answer, right? Like what's gonna make me healthier? And um, the answer is probably, you know, just not very simple, right? Like there are all these interesting new findings, but you always have to put them in context with what's already known and what's unanswered. And so just thinking about these recommendations for exercise, it's really hard to know what to, to recommend to people beyond a sort of broad, bland recommendation. I mean, what, to, what the, you know, the recommenders should recommend and also what the what people like me who write for the public should say, because people at the end of the day um, are generally looking for something simple when it's just, the answer really doesn't seem to be very simple. And it seems to be a mix, do a mixture of things. And be, and be moving target. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, another piece of evidence for how complicated this is, is that again, going to the like super rich, if you have a personal trainer who comes over every day for an hour and does stuff with you, you know, they may 
try to get you to do certain movements that you didn't even know you could do or that were useful. And they're they're carefully monitoring you to see like what your how your body responds and you know where you're more likely to be injured. And we stay away from that or what we need to strengthen. So you can just imagine it's a you know very smart, experienced person is coaching you and all the different things they can take into consideration. And and no human is going to get that from one Wall Street Journal article, but that's sort of this lifetime fitness, always learning about how to do better with your body and what your body needs. I think that's what, what most people end up having to do. Yeah. So now we come to the the crescendo of our discussion today. The incredible edible egg. Incredible edible egg, yes. And Bet just talked about the difficulty of shifting uh, recommendations. So uh, you recently wrote an article uh, about a study that came out, um, and the study, well, your article is uh, is study links eggs to higher cholesterol and risk of heart disease, eating 300 milligrams of dietary cholesterol a day or less than that of two egg yolks was associated with a 17% higher risk of cardiovascular disease, disease and an 18% higher risk of death from any cause. And, um, you know, this finding, uh, which was sort of shocking uh, to me, altered my eating habits, um, came after the American Heart Association, the American Academy of Cardiology, had recently relaxed their restrictions on egg consumption in 2015 um, when I increased my egg consumption uh, to, you know, not consistently, but I thought two eggs a day is totally fine. And we have, we'll have links to um, your article and these two articles below, but how do you approach a topic like this uh, where the the guidelines, the data and the guidelines seem to be shifting? You've got to cover it, but you know, how do you approach it and what kind of reaction have you gotten from your readers? Well, so the first thing you have to do when you see a study like this is decide whether to write about it or not because you have to determine whether it's saying something new enough, A, um, and B, whether the study is solid enough, you know, a large enough study sample and so forth. So this article, this, um, this study did qualify because of its finding was literally the opposite of, of the guideline change a few years earlier. Um, and it was also a study of more than 29,000 adults and, it, you know, over several years. So it was clearly a large sample. So that was the first thing, let's write about it. The second thing was, all right, how do we present this? Because um, there is a lot of controversy over eggs, right? Are they, are they, you know, should you eat them or should you not eat them? And it kind of boils down to, as Steve knows, uh, what is the role of diet? What, what, what does dietary cholesterol do in your body? With a study like this, what we try to do is First, obviously, lay out the findings, but then put them into context. You know, what is the current understanding? What are the controversies here? And what are people going to think about it? And just try to lay it all out for readers. Um, I think with any study like this, you never want to present it as this is the final word. This particular study is interesting in that it pointed out a problem with this type of research, with nutrition research in general which is that a lot of studies are epidemiological, right? This was based on a questionnaire given to participants in large cohort studies. So it's very difficult to actually test the effects of food on, on people in large numbers. So, so there are a lot of questions about epidemiological studies because if something, if you know, eating eggs was associated 
with a 17% higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease. That's very different from saying eating eggs caused that, you know, caused people to develop CVD or caused them to die. So those are all the the challenges in writing a story like so, this. So Corey, I, I mean, did you, so you, I think earlier you said that based on the earlier recommendation, you had relaxed your egg eating habits and you were allowing yourself to have two a day, which is like 14 eggs a week. And I, I don't think I ever quite got that much, but it got into my head that two eggs a day was okay. Was okay. And now based on this study, are you curtailing that behavior? So I, I don't think I, I definitely didn't eat 14 eggs a day, but I would quite comfortably eat a couple eggs, you know, maybe up to six a week. What I've done I'll since then- I'll sometimes eat six or eight eggs in one sitting, just so you know. <laughs> but I, I effectively uh, started replacing eggs with egg whites. So this, this morning I made an omelet for the family. All I those took, good fats taken out. It's true, but you had a lot of protein. So I took, <laughs> I took, I made six, I made the equivalent in volume of six eggs. I put two full eggs in there and then I added twice as much egg white. And you actually can't tell that much. You can't. It doesn't look that different. No, I agree. I agree. Um, egg white omelets, sir. Uh, they're okay. They're a little bland. You have to, I think you have to give a little bit of flavoring. But I guess what I'm probing you on is the new study. Has it actually moved your beliefs? Uh, because it sounds like survey data to me sounds like wow. That really you're going to move your beliefs it, it, on that. It hasn't removed my beliefs, right? But I'm. It. I'm saying, look, is the risk? If there's a risk there. Uh, do I want to take it just to have a few more eggs? And I can Fair. more or less get, I think, what I need from, you know, both my p- palate and from nutrition. I think by replacing them with egg whites, and so it seemed like a low risk maneuver. I'm a little agnostic, right? I kind of don't know what to think. Now. I don't either. I th- I think this nutrition stuff fluctuates so much; uh, it's a little bit hard to know. And plus, there's that additional variable of your own genetics. Like, you know, are you typical of the people in the study, or are you not? So, I, you know, again, my, my cholesterol levels have been pretty good for my primary. There have been no problems. I used to have, like, insanely low cholesterol. I don't have that anymore. I'm kind of more normal. And, yeah, is it, is it genetics or is it just exercising a lot? Uh, it's very hard to tell. Uh, has this changed your behavior, Betsy? Well, not really because I'm not a huge egg eater anyway. It did make me realize, like I said, how difficult these, you know, it is to reach it to actually figure out the role of eggs in cardiovascular health because there's genetics. Every person is different. Uh, Nutrition research, like I said, is focused on, most of it is epidemiological. I I don't know. I guess I don't, I've I've maybe thought a little bit more about how many eggs I eat a week, but I haven't um, changed it much. So we come to our last article, and this will be a short discussion because we've gone way over time. We thank you for all the time you've given us. But again, one of our favorite topics is fish and fish oil. I eat a lot of fish. We're in the Midwest, so the variety of fish isn't enormous here. I eat a lot of salmon. (laughs) Hey, we're we're Lake Michigan, man. Many people have told me that I should not eat the fish out of the Great Lakes. Mm, Okay. I don't know if that's, that's, uh, you know, slander against... uh, local fishing. So I think the last uh, systematic review I saw showed that there's pretty good evidence that eating fish is associated with lower rates of cardiovascular disease. But the question you raised in your article is, is whether fish oil by itself improves cardiovascular health or has other uh, health benefits. 
I guess implicit in there is whether there's something in fish that may be driving the CVD benefits that is not in fish oil. So here, it's, it, this is kind of an article which sums up all the issues we've been talking about because it seems totally unclear what fish oil does, if anything, for you. And it may do some other things. So you're kind of facing a task of writing about an almost entirely uncertain topic, but topic that's of interest right. to people. Of enormous interest to people, right. Exactly. So they want to know, you know, so every important step in the science or the re research on topics like fish oil and eggs, we want to cover, but we want to only cover the important ones. So there was a big study that found that fish oil didn't have a benefit for heart health. It's interesting because at the same time, there was a study that came out about a very a, a prescription drug um, called Vasepa that is a very concentrated form of fish oil. And that you know, did show that it lowered triglycerides. So it seems that they're in certain concentrations and certain types of fish oil. I mean, uh, the jury is still out, I guess, on this one. But clearly, high concentrations of certain types of, of fish oil are showing that they have a benefit. Whereas the fish oil supplements, it's all kind of still, still out there. I will say though, you know, after writing that story, I, I was asking myself, should I take fish oil? Should I not take fish oil? And I came away with, you know, the, the regular supplements. I came away with, there's no real harm that I could find. And um, there may actually be benefits. I mean, the same people who have been studying its effects on heart health are now looking at its effects um, on, on other things like depression. And those studies will be out in a few months. So, you know, stay tuned. So full disclosure, I eat four of those little fish oil capsules a day. And uh, I also eat tons of fish, uh, especially the, the fatty, oily kind of fish. Salmon. Sam, like salmon. I had salmon for dinner last night. There you go. M many years ago, again, I don't know whether it helps or not because nutritional science is a little bit like religion. Many years ago, when I was a young assistant professor, there was a chemist, theoretical chemist, that I was good friends with, who was really into nutrition and had studied, because he was, had quite a lot of expertise in chemistry, had studied a lot of these things in detail and read a lot of the medical literature. And he said to me, there are only two things I believe in. Uh, and I was quite young at this time, so I was like, you know, it didn't, my mortality wasn't really that foremost in my mind, and he was older, but, but it did impress upon me, uh, his findings. Two things. One, he said, eat fish oil. And the other one, he said, Google, go to Google and type in blueberry and brain and just read some of those articles. And as a consequence of that, I eat like a bowl of blueberries every day. And I have for like, I don't know, it's been over 20 years. So those are the only two things that um, I sort of do in terms of supplementation. I have to say that I'm uh, an avid fish eater also. You know, I'll eat fish sometimes five days a week. Again, the fatty kinds. Um, it has a lot of benefits, has a lot of vitamin D. It's thought to be what allowed people actually to survive fairly far north uh, when there wasn't a lot of sunlight. And that does seem like a really, really solid uh, result. Um, I, I think it's fascinating because uh, there is another, another question, right, as to what it is in fish that might be having these beneficial effects if it's not the oil. And I think that's something where the research is only at really very nascent stage. But I think we're about out of time, and I want to thank uh, Betsy for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. 
it's been fun spending time with both of you. Yeah, it's been really fun. Uh, and uh, hope we can do this again, because I think Corey and I have talked before about having po- more podcasts devoted to things like fitness and nutrition and, and health. And, and uh, I'd like to have Betsy back and also talk about what it's like being a health reporter, having been a former runner, because I, I assume that has shaped your perspective somewhat. That would be, that would be great. I would love to come great. back. Great.